Let me invite your attention to Luke, Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23. I have grown fondly affectionate of the Harvey family in just my six months here. Uh, early on, Johnny and his family won my heart for their example and their zeal. Doesn't hurt that both of them also are Southwestern Seminary graduates. I'm a bit uh, uh, biased in favor of those who uh, pack up from the southeast and go out to that moon they call Fort Worth and endure three or four years of study. But this morning, this being Johnny and Allison's and their children's last Sunday, I'm dedicating this message to their ministry. Don't know if it'll be much help, but I really see a lot of this in them and am very grateful uh, for that. At the end of the service, we'll be taking up our offering, and I want to ask you to include your love offering for Johnny and his family during that time. In the pew in front of you, you will find a love offering envelope there. I've already filled mine out and turned mine in, but it looks something like this. If you don't find that, then just fill out the check to Beach Haven and put in the memo Harvey uh, love offering or something to that effect, and uh, we want to send them off real well in a very honorable way. He's going to, he and Allison and the girls are going to Atlanta to do about the most difficult work that there is to do, and that is to plant a church in one of the most difficult areas of the city of Atlanta, in Grant, near Grant Park. So they'll need your prayers, uh, even more than your gifts, but they'll need that as well. So if you will give them your support, we would greatly, greatly appreciate that as, as, God, as uh, God leads you. Uh, but I think that the message this morning is very appropriate to their work and the vision that God has placed uh, on their heart in Luke chapter uh, 23. Now let me introduce the message and then I'm going to ask Chuck Ivey to come share with you his testimony about Baltimore. And Chuck, I'll call you up in just a moment. But uh, many years ago, I preached a series of messages on evangelism in one church I served. And one of my deacons came up to me afterwards and said, you know, that's, not ju that's just not me. I'm not the kind of guy to go up to a stranger and share the gospel or go door to door. And I, I, I had news for him that day. It isn't any of us. The Bible call, uh, compares it to warfare and puts us on the front lines. No one's comfortable with that. In fact, I will say to you that you will probably never get over your nervousness and awkwardness about sharing the gospel. Yeah. Paul didn't. He's, uh, in fact, the one that wrote to the Corinthians, when I was with you, I was with you in fear and weakness and much trembling. That's probably how you'll feel when you share the gospel with other people. You'll probably never get over it. The thing that you've got to do is make sure it doesn't paralyze you into silence. That's why I'm a bit amused by books entitled Evangelism for the Rest of Us, which is actually the title of a book. Its thesis is all the gregarious people do evangelism. All the outgoing people do evangelism. Those of us that are shy and introverted don't have books written for us. So I'm writing one entitled Evangelism for the Rest of Us. And as a gregarious and outgoing person, I've got news for you. We gregarious people don't do evangelism either. Uh, those who are shy and introverted actually uh, cover over their shyness and introversion when it comes to evangelism with silence. Those of us who are gregarious cover over it with chatter, and we drive the introverts crazy, is what we do. And so the gregarious people don't witness either. Uh, and and I, I want to suggest a better approach uh, to sharing the gospel. Let's not do it according to our personality type. Do you know why? Our personalities are not entirely redeemed, and so they're somewhat selfish. And we will drift towards security, and anything that makes us feel insecure, even obedience, is something we will flee. 
even if it's a command of God. And then uh, our personalities have no business being Lord over what we do. We can't elevate our personality type and supplant Jesus Christ with a personality type. We're not permitted to do that. Jesus Christ is Lord. And He alone, and He's not taking applications for the throne. He and He alone is Lord. Uh, And then the personality type is very mischievous. It is. And then finally, I would say to you, the two most effective soul winners I know are both introverts. Roy Fish, the legendary evangelism professor at Southwestern, was shy and introverted. And Dr. Patterson, the president of my, of my school, introverted and shy. Now that surprises most people because they did not let that master them. Instead, it really became quite an advantage. I don't know if you know very many, many introverts, and, and you probably know some, but frankly, introverts scare some people. They, they do. Ext- introvert. Did I say introverts scare people? Extroverts scare people. Introverts are sometimes a bit more comfortable for some folks. So if you're an introvert, you actually have some advantages when it comes to evangelism that I don't have. I I couldn't shut off my personality if I died. It would be just very difficult. And so there there are times when I actually absolutely annoy some people because I can tend to cover uh, nervousness with chatter. Well, I want to ask Chuck Ivey to come and to share with us for a moment his testimony about Baltimore. I have no idea what he's going to say, but I was his partner one afternoon, and I was very impressed uh, with this man that God's put his hand on who uh, uh, was born and came up through the ministries of Beach Haven Baptist Church as he hit the streets and went door to door. Go, go ahead and come, Chuck, to share the gospel of Christ with friends in Baltimore. Chuck, you all give Chuck a Beach Haven welcome, would you? Yeah. That. Uh, Dr. Mills asked me to share a, a lesson I learned while we were at uh, Baltimore. So I would put it like this. God uses what seems like random or unplanned situations as opportunities for us to share the gospel. Uh, in day two or three of uh, Baltimore, we were at a place called Fells Point, uh, which is like the main pier or hub of uh, downtown Baltimore. And uh, we had done door-to-door evangelism. We had done street evangelism. And so we were kind of between sessions. And we're over there at the main pier area at Fells Point, and I see a guy sitting on a bench, and something told me I should go talk to that guy. So I talked with him. Uh, his name was George. Uh, George was basically homeless. Uh, of course, I'm carrying my backpack with me, so I offered him some trail mix and beef jerky. He accepted that. Um, pretty quickly managed to get the conversation around to what did he believe. So George believes in God. Uh, he believes in Jesus. He knows a little bit of the Bible, although he thought King James actually wrote the Bible. Um, I'm a big Bible nerd, so we talked about that for a while. Uh, and then asked him, okay, well, what would it take for you to turn your life over to, to Christ and be saved? And so his response was, well, I got to get my life in order. I got a lot of things I got to do. So I asked him what? He said, well, he had been arrested twice for panhandling, and so he had to deal with his court issues and that type of thing. So shared the gospel with him and explained, look, you, you can't do anything. You don't have to do anything. In fact, if you try to do anything to earn it, you can't have it. Yeah. Place your faith in, in Christ. Um, and pretty quickly, I noticed George started getting a little uncomfortable. And this guy who'd been hanging out uh, on the pier all day suddenly had somewhere else to be. And he was pretty, pretty urgent to go. So the scripture that, uh, that that brought to mind for me was uh, from Acts chapter 8, the story of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I'll start at verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. 
and heard him reading from Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, I'd like to be able to tell you that right then and there, George professed Christ, turned his life over to Jesus, and we just jumped in the pier right there and baptized him right there at Fells Point. Uh, but that didn't happen. Like I said, George uh, suddenly became real uncomfortable once I started really pressing him about the issue of sin, uh, that he needed to turn himself over to Christ, and that there was nothing he could do to, to get his life straight on his own to be right with God. But um, the other thing that occurred to me was that about a year ago, um, I got to talk with our adopted daughter, Addison's birth mother. Um, we'd kind of suspected that uh, she was not a believer. Uh, in my conversations with her about a year ago, she made it pretty clear. Um, basically, she said she didn't think she was a sinner, didn't think she was that bad, and that uh, she was good enough to kind of go to heaven on her own. Um, just yesterday, we got to have another visit with her. And uh, when I talked with her over the phone, I told her that uh, Addison had been baptized. And <clears throat> she told us that... Um, she, Addison's birth mom, had accepted Christ and that she had actually planned on being baptized the same day that Addison ended up being baptized. I uh, got to have a real good conversation with uh, Addison's birth mom yesterday. Uh, she made it clear that uh, she is in a completely different place now. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she's, she's done wrong. And she knows just like everyone else, she needs Christ. And she says she, she has prayed to accept Christ as her Savior. Uh, all that's to say... I don't know if five minutes after George walked away, he accepted Christ. I don't know if it'll be five years from now. Um, but my hope is that by spreading the gospel that uh, eventually he will come to, come to faith and that at least uh, we were all obedient to, to share the gospel. Our world needs the Lord Jesus, and Jesus is worthy of every life, without exception. And when you focus on those two things, like Chuck did in Baltimore and with uh, a dear sweet friend here in the county, you put them first. And when you do that, you are better able to overcome the nervousness and awkwardness. If you get nervous and tore up, and awkward about sharing the gospel, just think of how worthy Jesus is of your obedience and that life. And just think how needy that person is. And we meet a needy person on the pages of Luke chapter 23. Here in this text, Jesus did evangelism in a tough place. Now you're familiar enough with Luke to know what Jesus is facing here in the text, are you not? What's happening in Luke 23 to Jesus? He is dying. It's the crucifixion. Jesus is bleeding and pouring out his life. And he does evangelism from the cross. Despite the scourging that preceded the cross, where his back was beaten and bloodied and inflamed and bruised and his face was mangled, Isaiah 52, 14 says, he was marred more than any man. More than anyone has ever suffered abuse and lived, Jesus did. 
before he went to the cross. His back was turned into ribbons of quivering flesh, one author wrote. And then he was placed on the cross with Roman spikes through his hands and through his feet. And he was surrounded by people howling blasphemy against his name. And even there, Jesus took time to do evangelism. Beginning in verse number 32 of Luke 23. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, said, rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Like Jesus, you can do evangelism in a difficult place. Well, how is that? Well, there are several elements that surface from the text. One happens to be presence. You can do evangelism in a tough place with your presence. You've got to be present, of course, before doing that. Now, verse 32 uses a key term in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We find this in Luke 7, 11, where the disciples are with Jesus at a funeral. In Luke 8, 1, when they are with him on a preaching mission. In Luke 9, 18, where they are praying and the disciples are there and Jesus, or Peter confesses his faith. In Luke 9.30, Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah. They are with him there. Then in Luke 22.14, the disciples are with Jesus at the table. Look at verse number 32. Look who's with him here. There were also two others, criminals led with him. The disciples are no longer with Jesus. Like like many disciples today, when it gets tough, they fled. But in his dying moments, the unbelieving, the criminal, the lost, the least, the lowest, happens to be with Jesus Christ in this text. In other words, in Jesus' dying moments, the Father providentially arranges for lost people to be with him. L.R. Scarborough said, Jesus dying stopped long enough to carry with him the worst of sinners into paradise. Jesus never took his eyes off of lost people. He won all he could from his baptism to his expiring breath. 
And so from beginning of his ministry until his dying moments, Jesus is constantly with lost people. Now, I believe that evangelism training could improve many people. We'll do that in August. We'll ask you to make a commitment in August, and then we will train you. In fact, I'm going to ask you for at least one hour a month to reach out and to visit people and seek to bring them to the Lord with sweetness and kindness and with the saving gospel of Christ. And we'll ask you for that in August. And so I think training can be a great big help. I think rededication and commitment can be a great big help as well. I know some people have drifted from the Lord and they don't have the Lord's agenda on their heart. They, they, they've got a cold heart towards lost people. I understand that. But what I've got to say to you is this. The truth is, is that these things can help. Training and rededication can help. But you know what I found an awful lot of faithful Christians need? It's not only training. Perhaps they don't need any more. And not only rededication, they rededicate themselves daily as we should. What they need is what Jesus has here in Luke 23. They simply need to be around more non-Christians. I need to tell you something that happens, and it's a life development and life cycle thing in, in our lives. As we get older, we become more isolated from non-Christians. We really do. Unless we are in the people business, such as sales, or we are in education where we're teaching in a classroom setting, our circle of friends collapses about the time we finish high school. And then when we finish college, it tightens even more. And then when we marry and have children and that family grows, it tightens even more. And we become more responsible for family and for work and people we see every day. And so the opportunity to meet more and more non-Christians shrivels as the years and decades pass. What some of you need today in order to become effective is not more guilt. I think that could help some people, but not all. What some of you need is not more guilt. What some of you need is maybe not more training, though I think that might help. What some of you need is you simply need more friends with non-Christians is what you need. And, and, and so for that reason, many of you are just this far, a quarter inch, no, a eighth, no, a sixteenth of an inch away from being effective at reaching people for Christ if you were to do just this one thing. And that is intentionally make a new friend with someone every day. Do you know how you do that? Instead of paying at the pump for your gasoline, go into the convenience store. And if you pay at the pump, go buy a Diet Mountain Dew. And if you'll keep doing that at the same place, you'll find that the cashier's there, a revolving door. You can meet somebody new every two or three weeks. Employment like that is that way in places like that. Uh, at the grocery store, let the bag boy carry your groceries out to your car. When someone delivers Domino's pizza to you, carry a track with you to the door and get to know their name. In other words, intentionally see people as people. So I have to say to you, as far as I'm concerned, in the athens Clark County metro region, there are no Domino's pizza delivery boys. There are no cashiers. There aren't any. No, there aren't any bag boys at the grocery store. There are really no neighbors. You know who there are? There are people for whom Jesus died. And Christ loves them and he loves you today. And that may be the best news you've ever heard. In fact, it is. But ladies and gentlemen, there, there aren't cashiers and delivery boys and there aren't bag boys. Instead, there are Jerry's and there are Heather's and there are Christie's and there are Sarah's and there are Bobby's and there are Julian's. That's who they are. 
And so getting present around them and intentionally expanding our circle of friends on a daily basis is profoundly important. And I've got to say to you, since 1980, our metro region at the very least has grown by 30%, if not more. There are plenty of new people to know and to befriend. So that's the first thing, is presence. But there's a second thing that's going to be a great help, and that is compassion. Do evangelism in a tough place with Compassion. Now, as we read the text, you saw immediately at least two reasons for Jesus to have anything but compassion for this crowd. I mean, divinity and perfection live amongst us and they kill him. And we are their offspring, is what happens in this text. At least two reasons surface in the text not to have any compassion upon a sinning world. One happens to be offensive behavior. Did you see in verse 34? Soldiers are gambling for the Lord's clothes. They are at the foot of the cross, the most significant event in all of history, and all they can think about is gambling and clothing. And then in verse number 35, the crowd is gawking. They're merely onlooking when they should bow and cry out to Christ. And then in verse 35, the religious leaders are sneering. They're sneering at Him. Their derision and hostility is so vociferous and intense they can't help it at that moment to let it out when Jesus is bleeding. They're sneering. The guards, in verse 36, are mocking him. And then, one of the criminals next to him blasphemes him as if he's got the moral authority to do so. As Rome is executing him for his crimes. One commentator asked, who had been more wronged than Jesus? Is there anyone who has ever lived who was more wronged than Jesus? Is there anyone who was least deserving of this kind of behavior and treatment than Jesus? Offensive behavior. But then there are some offensive words that they say as they behave this way. Look look at verse 35 with me. Is this not stunning? The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And then the soldiers mocked him in verse 37. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then Pilate, who knows his motivation, placed above Jesus' head this inscription written in the three major languages of the world. This is the king of the Jews. And then verse 39. Criminal said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Did you see the content? I know you heard the emotion. But did you see and read the content of each of these statements? Let's look again. Verse 35. Saved, save, Christ, chosen of God. Verse 37. King of the Jews, saved. Verse 38. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. Christ, save yourself, us. These people have got the proper content of theology, and yet their hearts are all wrong. They are thinking of salvation, Christ, King, chosen of God, and yet their words indicate they are far from God. It is entirely possible to use the right religious language and get Jesus all wrong. And that is what takes place here. Is there any reason in the world to have compassion upon this crowd? 
A crowd that engages in awful offensive behavior uses the Lord's name in vain is really what's taking place here and includes in their derisive statements and dismissive statements to Jesus even an element of the truth. Apparently they'd heard the gospel of salvation. Christ the King, Christ the Chosen One. It was on their lips and yet they were far away. And yet, do you see our Lord's response in verse 34? There are a number of ways to say something in the past tense in most languages. In the Greek, there are several ways. One is the aorist tense. I don't mean to give you a Greek lesson today or a grammar lesson, but the aorist tense means something is seen as a point in time as a completed action. And then there is the imperfect, which oftentimes indicates repeated action, something that happens repeatedly. Verse 34 is recorded in the imperfect tense. The black letter is in the imperfect tense. The red letter is in the aorist. Verse 34, then Jesus said, that is imperfect. Jesus repeatedly said, Jesus repeated, Father, please forgive them now for they know not what they do. The Lord is crucified in such a way that His diaphragm is restricted. It was very difficult to breathe while being crucified. You'd have to push up on the nails in your feet to expand your diaphragm and gasp for a few breaths of air and then settle down for a while. And oftentimes, victims of crucifixion would grow so tired pushing up and down that they would give up and they would die from asphyxiation. They, they just couldn't breathe anymore. And so Jesus is struggling to breathe. Well, it takes breath to speak. You speak by expelling air out of your lungs through your vocal cords. And so the Lord here is using his dying breath to cry out to the Father repeatedly. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's the same compassion the Lord has on you today if you're humble before God and have sins to cancel and to forgive. And so he pushes up on the nails in his feet and cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. He does this repeatedly, not, not just once, but he has, he has a heart upon those who are gawking and upon those who are blaspheming and those who are merely looking and those who are reviling him and dismissing him who have the word of truth on their lips but nothing but demonism in their heart. Jesus has compassion and in his dying moments and his worst moment he wants to save and forgive. Now I've got good news for you. The father heard this request. Oh yes he did because you see what happened. Right next to him the thief believes. And then, later at the foot of the cross, the centurion believes. And 50 days later, after Passover, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believe. And I will say to you, that is a significant element in effective evangelism in a tough place. Everything nailed down in our world is coming loose really rapidly. 
Now, I just set a record for overstatement, but that's really what's happening, or understatement, excuse me. And it is an enormous temptation in this day to become angry. Don't go there. The anger of man, James said in James 1, 19 to 21, does not achieve the righteousness of God. It isn't going to help. It will not reflect the Lord. You know what you could do when faced in a tough situation where maybe the right vocabulary is on the lips but the heart is wrong? You might just want to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's how your Savior responded. You know, and this is why I have been very careful with my Facebook posts. Communication does not happen only in your mind. <coughs> Communication happens in the mind of those who hear you and read you. You have to be very careful how you craft your communication then. It is very easy in this intense and hostile day to be misunderstood. And you will spend more time untangling misunderstanding then you will communicating truth if you are not careful with your Facebook post or your words. You've got to be exceptionally, exceptionally careful. Now, I will say to you, in this day, and this is true in marriage, and this is true in neighborhoods, in churches, this is true at work, this is true in culture, society, Facebook, Twitter, and the next social media to come and annoy everybody. This is a day where even if you communicate carefully, people will hear what you're not saying, even if you don't want to say it and don't believe it. So sometimes there's just not much you can do, but that is no license to be reckless and careless. And so for that reason, I do not put political posts on my Facebook page. I've got atheist friends. I've got friends whose lifestyles I don't agree with. I've got friends that are theological opponents. And I just don't post things that they would misunderstand. I'd rather have a cup of coffee with them than sit across the table. Now, you do what your Facebook posts what you want to. But my point is this. Be very, very careful with your communication that you do not fail to communicate that is something that lacks compassion. And I will tell you a couple things that will help you. One is to check your heart every day. Make sure that you wake up in the morning and enter God's world on mission with Him with a heart full of compassion. Check your heart every day in your prayer time. But the second thing is, is to make a list of 15 people who concern you spiritually and pray for them on a daily basis and lift them up to God and expand it every day. I, I told you months ago about a Baptist mother in Minnesota who every day prays for every person to whom she's witnessed and at last count she was praying for 1,200 people every day. I don't expect that you'll do that, but most of us could greatly improve on what we're doing now. So compassion is going to be incredibly important. But then, th there's a third element here as well. And that happens to be the gospel. Do evangelism in a tough place with the gospel. Often the Romans would take a sign and hang it around the neck of the crucifixion victim. And they would etch onto that sign the crime uh, for which the victim was being accused. That appears here in verse number 38. He would be marched up to the place of crucifixion with the sign around his neck, and then the sign would be nailed above his head on the cross. And here is Jesus crying. 
Now some speculate that Pilate had it placed this way as a mockery to the Jews. Some wonder if he had faith. Some think that he may have been sneering and mocking Christ himself. But nevertheless, he accidentally got it right or unintentionally got it right or intentionally got it right. Who knows? When he's placed on that sign, this is the king of the Jews. Well, do you know what you have here? You have the very first example of a gospel track in Christian history. That's what happens here. A very brief statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I carry tracks with me everywhere. In fact, I've written one, had it published. I've done three, in fact. And I carry a little track wallet with me here. And I carry this, tra- this uh, particular track with me and others and try to share them as I go about. And, and much of the reason is what I've learned here in this text in verse number 38. This is the king of the Jews. And all through the years that I've shared tracks, I've only had two people turn them down. Not many at all. Most people are willing to receive a gospel track, especially if you write it out and have it published yourself. And if you need that, we can help you with that. Let us know. But the truth is, is that in the dying moments of this thief, God arranged to have him presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you. You've got a man here who is worthy of crucifixion, this, this thief. In fact, both of them. What are you going to tell this man in his dying moments? What would most of the world tell him? What would his family tell him? What would his brother say to him? Can you imagine? He is essentially a Jewish terrorist against Rome. He is part of that crowd that is uh, most likely uh, seeking to destroy Rome one dagger at a time and the heart at a time. Is precisely what he's doing. And, And that's why he's being executed. He is, as the other Gospels say, an insurrectionist. He's trying to stir revolt against Rome. Well, if you're his brother and you're standing at the foot of his cross as he's bleeding and dying there, what do you say? Here I've got our mother to take care of and look what you've done. Can you hear that? His mother's standing there and saying, Son, how could you do this to us? Can you imagine Roman officials? Ha, you thought you were getting away with it. And this is what you get. The rulers that are there who've conspired for the death of Christ, can you imagine what they say? Son, you violated the Ten Commandments. You didn't follow the law. Look where you are now. But is that what Christ gets to him? No. What you find here instead is that you find in his dying moments, God delivers the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to him. This is the King of the Jews. He saw the gospel in the crucifixion. He hears the gospel and some of the statements he's got to put together from the critics. He he sees compassion in Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He reads the gospel track above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And look at what he does in the text here. He cries out to Jesus and defends him and admits his sin. We're being condemned justly in verse 41. This man is impeccable. He is not sin. And then he sees through all the blood and through the cross and through the nails and through the crown of thorns verse number 42 Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom and I've got news for you no one has a kingdom unless he's a king he sees in Jesus Christ a king and perceives the true gospel of Jesus Christ promised in the garden proclaimed by the prophets and delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ in these moments and the Lord makes him a promise emphatically I I would paraphrase emphatically I say to you today you will be with me in paradise. 
God delivered the gospel of Christ. That's why Isaac Watts wrote, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And I've got good news for you today. If you're humble before God, you believe you've broken His law, and you trust the death and resurrection of Christ for the penalty of your sin, God will plunge you into this fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And you can leave here clean, cleansed and right with God and made new and adopted into the family instantaneously upon your confession of Jesus Christ to God. God will do it. But here's the instructive point for us. Our first message to our world must be the saving gospel of Christ. Now, we have other important biblical messages that we've got to teach our people internally. We have to do that. And I do believe to a degree we've got to engage the issues of the day with the world to explain our position on certain issues. But the first message that we declare to the world is the saving gospel of Christ. I am pro-life, but that is not my first message to a lost and dying world. Jesus saves is the first message. I am pro-family and pro-marriage, but that's not my first message to a lost and dying world. They, they don't understand it without the saving experience of Jesus Christ. It's not my first message. Now, I am intense about these things, and I have been for 30 years. I have been for a long time, and I will never bend as long as I find these messages in the Word of God. But I've got to let you know, dear friend, it matters not what you've done or what your position. Jesus saves, and He wants to save now and today and forever. And He wants you. He calls you. And, and I, I need to let you know, we Baptists are very intense about the messages I've mentioned. But don't take from that that we think that we're superior and don't think for a moment that we are. We are not. We are painfully aware that the number one denominational preference in the prisons of America is Baptist. We know that. I think it's because we do evangelism there more than anyone else and we've got some family members there and some other things. But the truth is, is that we are painfully aware, we are painfully aware that we are not superior. We're not a superior folk. We would be on our way to hell and plunge so deeply and take the devil six months to dig us out if it weren't for Jesus. Yes, He's our only hope. Yes, we don't have a righteousness. We don't have a virtue on our own that would ever admit us into the presence of God and the saving grace of Christ. It's only the blood and the cross. He's our only hope. Yes. And He offers that same hope to you. That is our first message. And once we bring them to Christ, God by His Spirit and His Word can transform the thinking. It's remarkable how many people change their minds about these other issues when they meet Jesus Christ. He, he brings them to himself and then he cleanses them, or as my grandfather used to demonstrate for me, he catches his fish first and then he cleans them. And we've got to be very, very careful that we do not communicate these other messages first to a lost world or else they will turn that into self-righteousness or a legalistic approach to salvation. They always do. The flesh is always going that way. We've got to insist upon the grace of God. So don't become distracted with other issues. There's one final thing here that I, I need to mention that I believe is a key for doing evangelism in a tough place. And I want to state that this particular element is endurance. Do evangelism in a tough place with endurance. And I want to follow that up with a question. What keeps you 
from evangelism every day? What keeps you from sharing the sweet message of Christ and inviting people to Christ? Nervousness, awkwardness, fear, lack of opportunity, lack of training, the list goes on and on. Usually those three or four in the top ten annually and have been for a long time. But what keeps you from sharing the good news of Christ? I want you to consider Jesus. We learn from John 19 he's got a family crisis going on as he's dying. I'm sure Joseph has passed away because Jesus arranges for his mother's convalescent care from the cross. In John chapter 19, he does. He looks at John and says, Son, behold your mother. And he looks at his mother with his last expiring breaths. Mother or woman, behold your son. Instead of transferring care of Mary to his brothers, he transferred care of Mary to the Apostle John. Good thing he's got the insight to write the book of Revelation. That's kind of a step up compared to Jesus' brothers. So he's got this family crisis. He's concerned about his mother. Joseph is off the scene or else he would care for her. Jesus is the head of the household. He's got to arrange for her care in her elder years. He's got a family crisis. Obviously he has a physical crisis. He's bleeding and dying on the cross. And Jesus shared the gospel while crucified. Now would you remind me why you don't? Howard Ramsey wrote Continuous Witness Training, probably the most effective evangelism program in Southern Baptist life, probably the second most effective in the history of evangelism training behind Evangelism Explosion. And I spoke with him one time. He's teaching, by the way, a Sunday school class at First Baptist Snellville. He's 87 years old and teaching verse by verse of the book of Revelation. And I get to communicate with him on occasion. And one time he wrote these words. After observing my own pastoral ministry and watching other effective ministries, I have concluded that the number of people who come to Jesus is in direct proportion to the number of people we tell about Jesus. Well, imagine that. The more we tell, the more will come. In other words, I want to encourage you to get after evangelism and stay after it like some of our campers did this past week with basketball. Some of our campers approach shooting the way some of you approach hunting. They just keep shooting till they hit something. And, they, and maybe target practice and shooting is not a good image for evangelism. Forgive me, I'm from Texas. But um, just keep telling people about Jesus till someone repents. Keep doing it, and, and if you'll do that, the person who comes behind you will have an easier time. Just plan to share the gospel every day for the rest of your life. Start after it, endure. Endure the awkwardness, endure the difficulty, endure the embarrassment, endure it all. Endure the rejection, because you're not living for the pleasure of men, you're living for the pleasure of Christ. You keep sharing and someone's going to repent. Now this text is quite sobering. Because here we have two thieves, and we have one that believes, and publicly, in the midst of ridicule, at the worst possible moment, gives himself to Christ. And we have the other who does not. He joins the others and he blasphemes. This represents all of humanity. 
There are three categories in all of life. There is Christ the Savior and Lord, and He fills that alone. And then there's the thief who rejects Christ. That's a category of humanity that is lost. And then the other category, and only other category, happens to be those who trust Him. Which category are you in today? Both of these saw the same Jesus. They heard the same words. They witnessed the same death. One repented and the other blasphemed. One Anglican bishop said, Few are ever saved on their deathbeds. One thief on the cross was saved that none should despair and only one that none should presume. If you're humble before God today and you are under the burden of your sins, I want to assure you this Savior loves you and He'll take you just as you are if you're humble and if you'll come to Him. You do not need to despair. There is a Savior and His death and resurrection are sufficient. But please don't presume. There was another criminal who said no. And you're hearing the same message today and you've witnessed in the text the same death and the same reenactment of Jesus Christ's death. Don't presume. Be very, very careful with the matters of your soul. And if His death and His promise and call to you now does not stir you, be alarmed. God offers you now forgiveness and salvation. Now while your heart is tender, believe Him. One of the thieves did, the other did not. While Christ has your attention, turn to Him. One of these thieves did. While you understand, trust Him. One thief saw in Him a Savior and King. Now while you're surrounded by friends and with sympathy, confess Him. This man went public for Jesus at the worst possible moment. When no one but Jesus loved Him. And He will do that for you. Father, we pray that friends today would rush to Christ and say yes to Him. Those of us who know Him, we pray that we will not be able to live with ourselves unless we shout the glories and the grace of His name. We pray, O God, that you would move powerfully on us today and exalt the Lord in our midst. I pray that no one humble would despair. I pray there'd be no arrogance here to presume. We pray that you would give all that is necessary to repent and believe the gospel. All that is necessary to shout and declare. All that is necessary, dear God, to affiliate and join a gospel-preaching church such as this one. Would you help us now? And give the grace necessary to exalt the Lord. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And we want to give you all the help that you need in this moment. To leave here as a pleasure to Jesus Christ and not a sorrow. Our staff is going to be here in the front. And we're going to sing this song. And just as soon as we start, why don't you step out from where you are. And make your way down one of these aisles to see a staff member. And tell that staff member your need, and we'll help. We'll take as much time as you need, but you come. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And let me finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart in these moments be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. And when we are done, and when we say the amen, May you have all that you intended to have from this service. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. You come.